We are in Mark 7 today. Mark 7, this is um, actually a, a really important passage, and, and one that is, I think, um, was, was very huge, very key in shaping the way the early church understood what it means to belong to God. Um, because passages like this basically undid, I want to say undid, radically changed the paradigm that had been held for almost 1,500 years. Um, um, some, some key shifts in the way people perceived, what does it look like to be near to God, to belong to Him, to be His, and some of the kind of grassroots of that change um, we really see start to take place in, in some of the stuff that Jesus says in Mark 7. Um, there is a lot to explore here, both on my end and on Scott's end, so um, we'll jump in and we'll move um, fairly, uh, fairly quick. Um, let's see here. Jess, since you are back in town tonight, you'll be our honorary reader. All right. Can do this. Um, she's a college graduate, so she should she should have no problem with this. Yeah. Um, all right. Go with. Read for me, chapter seven, verses one through five. One day, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cuffed hands, as required by their ancient traditions. Sim- similarly, similarly <laughs> they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of the traditions they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, Why don't your disciples follow your age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. All right. Um, So, here we see the Pharisees, another encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. Um, There was a series of them in chapter 2 leading into chapter 3 as Mark is holding up kind of the way that Judaism had operated with the way that Jesus challenged that. And and there was one instance in chapter 3 in which you actually had Um, what we just see here, not just the Pharisees of that Galilean region, but you actually have scribes or teachers of the law who are most likely from the Pharisaic party coming up from Jerusalem, or as the Bible always says, coming down from Jerusalem, because A, Jerusalem is on a mountain, and B, Jerusalem is the center of their world. And so um, you come down from Jerusalem, and we have these scribes and Pharisees that make their way down, most likely to check in on this new rabbi and his teachings. Last time they came, it didn't end very well. Um, They called him the devil, and he said that they'll never be forgiven. So, um, it wasn't a smooth conversation. It wasn't a gentle one. Um, But these people have come again, and the question they ask is, why don't your um, why don't your disciples wash their hands? Specifically, they actually ask, why do they eat with defiled hands? Um, is what it says in the ESV. And that word defiled is kind of interesting. It's koinos from where we get the word koine Greek, um, which is what our New Testament is written in. Common. Common Greek. 
Um, what they're doing, they're saying, is taking things that ought to be holy and making them plain and regular and profaning it. Why are your, why are your disciples doing that? Why aren't they washing their hands? Mark gives in here this long explanation. The Jews, and especially the Pharisees, always wash their hands before they eat, and they have many rituals like this, which hints at something for us about Mark's audience. What is that? His, his audience is Gentile, right? Because he, he has to explain the Jewish tradition to them. This is what the Jews do. It would be kind of weird for me to tell you, this is what all OSU students do. Just so you know, okay? You don't be going, I, we, we are those people. So we kind of, and, and so he's telling these people because they're, they're clearly not Jewish and explaining a little bit of what the practices were like and, and why they went about those things. Now, um, this is one of those texts in which it gets really easy for us to look back and take shots as the, at the Pharisees for their ridiculousness and, and making such a big deal about eating with unwashed hands. And by the way, they're not complaining for the same reason your mom complained when you didn't wash your hands, right? Um, it's not you're going to get sick. It's not that's gross. It's, it's literally ceremonially to, to be clean before God, to be holy in His presence and right with Him. That's why you wash your hands. Um, but it is good to, for us to understand the motivation behind this. We've touched a little bit on this, but, but the Pharisees don't have like the legalistic motivation that, that we, or the stereotypical legalism motivations that we often kind of heap on them. They come at this with good reason. They're at least two major reasons why they hold to rituals like this. Why they had so many, you've probably heard it kind of said, every time I look for a marker, I realize there are none. It gets so, I don't even need this. So, what you, you've probably heard it explained um, that what the Pharisees were doing was they had the law and their ancestors previously had really blown it when it came to caring for this and taking care of this and doing the right thing. And so what often gets described is that the Pharisees were placing a hedge around the law to protect it. And so if the law says this, why not kind of take it a step further and move it out to kind of protect it even more? This is kind of what they're doing, and they're doing this for a couple reasons. Um, one is, at this time... Um, Pagan, uh, pagan influence from the world around them, particularly Hellenism, which is what? Greek culture, is just overrunning the empire. Ever since Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world and, and brought Hellenism with it, it was really taking over and it was the dominant worldview and understanding and language and all those things. And so it was pressing in on every corner of the empire, particularly Judaism or even Judaism right here. And so this is a way for them, things like the ceremonial washing of hands before they eat is a way to keep their identity. How else, like how are you going to know the difference between God's people and the rest of the pagan world around them? Well, things like hand washing and the foods you eat and the way you go about ceremonies and washing pots and stuff is one way to mark yourselves and to make sure that the people of God stay distinct from the pagan world around them. And so this is one of their major motivations. The second one, and one that I had really not considered very much until this week as I was kind of studying a little bit, is, and, and I really believe this is kind of a, it, it brought me a little extra sympathy for them, is that they are trying to take God's Word that has been given to people and make it applicable and practical for everyday people in everyday situations. 
So how do I live this out? And the Pharisees, the law does not give, as you read the Old Testament law, it does not give you, even though it is highly detailed, it does not give you every command for every specific situation that you might encounter in life. And so there are a number of places where people are going, yeah, but what's the specific rule about the Sabbath in this situation? And the Pharisees and the scribes wanted to sit down and help people out and say, this is, this is how this works. This is how we would explain this. Um, so take, for example, here's, here's kind of a general statement that they're working on. Psalm 24 says this, how does, a, how does a regular human being approach an almighty, holy God? And Psalm 24 says that you do not approach God unless you have clean hands and a pure heart. Which, which is cool and that's nice and that makes sense, but, but the question would arise, what practically does that mean for me? Like, how do I have clean hands and a pure heart for, before God? I want to make sure I know how to do that. And so the Pharisees sat down and they, they tried to help out and say, this is what it means. It means things like washing your hands ceremonially before every meal. It means things like making sure that no part of your house is unclean and defiled, that you're cleaning those things before you eat from them or use them and those kinds of things. Um, another one is, is this specific issue of hand washing. So there was actually a rule about washing your hands in the Old Testament. It just wasn't for everybody. It was for the priests in Exodus 30. And before the priests were to do their work in the temple and work with burnt sacrifices, they were to wash their hands. Also, the priests and their families were allowed to eat. There were specific offerings that would be brought, like a goat for some sort of um, offering. And the meat from that, or the meat from a bull or whatever, was actually could be given to the priest and his family to eat. But before they did that, they had to be ceremonially clean and they needed to be washed, them and anybody in their household who would eat it. So there were these rules, and the Pharisees would look at those things and say, okay, like, if it's true for them, like, if it's good for priests to be that way, would it not be good and, and better for, like, everyday normal people to work to be that clean before God? Like, why would, why would we stop ourselves at just the priests when all of us could try to approach God in that way? And so that's where something like ceremonial hand-washing starts, where we say, let's, let's not set the bar low, let's set it high, and let's all go there. And so that's kind of their heart in trying to provide practical, practical application. Exodus 30, priests wash their hands. What does that mean for you? How about you do the same thing um, for the people around them? But of course, as you know, there are major flaws um, that start to arise from this, and that's what Jesus begins to point out um, here in this text. Um, so read just verses 6 through 13. Jesus replied, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Then he said, You skillfully sidestep, God, sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you the law from God, honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents, and so you cancel the word of God in order to honor, in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is just one example among many others. 
All right. So here is the core of the problem with what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing is they were they had gotten so caught up in these extra t- traditions that they were doing to try and protect themselves and the Jewish people and to try and help apply things. They had gotten so caught up in these things that it actually ended up hindering their obedience to God's actual laws and commands. Um, they made these traditions that were, and Jesus stresses this, so they come to him and say, why don't your disciples honor the traditions of the elders? And that's not the way Jesus refers to those things. He refers to them just as the traditions of men. As sort of a pejorative used to say, he compares their traditions of men, human beings, to the commands of God. And he says, you hold to the traditions of man while neglecting the commands of God. Because what they had done is they had taken these things that were merely traditions, merely forms of practice, and they had elevated them to such a degree that they came, that they they rose to the same level as God's words, and sometimes even surpassing them in the way they paid attention to them and followed them. Here's a quote from one rabbi who wrote a little after this time, probably about 100 years, 150 years after Jesus, but, but you can be sure that the Pharisees of Jesus' time held a very similar position. This is what one rabbi said, Whoever eats bread without previously washing the hands is as though he had intercourse with a prostitute. Yeah. So, yeah. Relax is what you want to say. Yeah, wash those hands. That's, yeah. Um, Wash those hands. Yeah, this 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 is the degree of seriousness that was taken over this, like this is how big a deal. Now, obviously, the whole having sex with a prostitute, that's like a real don't do that kind of thing, right? That's a real like command from God to not do that. But they're saying not washing your hands, nothing found in Scripture about it, okay, for everyday life. And they're saying they've taken it as their own rule and they've put it to the same level. So the same kind of thing, and so therefore they start to missing. Hand washing becomes for them, and this is huge, hand washing becomes a marker of who's in and who's out. Not, not who's in the cool club, not who's in our clique, like who's acceptable to God and who's acceptable to us. And so it becomes a marker of who I will or will not associate with. And, and it becomes something very destructive instead of helpful. Likewise, Jesus says, there were vows that could be made. Um, the, 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 the term was korban, which is, which is this section of my money that I've dedicated or of my property that I've dedicated to God. And it will one day go to Him. And so I allot this as korban, and I say that this is for Him. And then if, Jesus said, if, a parent, if like a person's parents are in desperate need... Um, you would tell him, hey, stick with your vow rather than caring for your parents. The vow is nothing that is spoken of in Scripture, whereas honor your father and mother is. And Jesus says, even if it's a vow, like the vow may have not been wise, or even if it is a vow made to God, what God cares about is caring for your parents. And so they should be able to do those things, and and yet they weren't. And here's what's kind of crazy and ironic is that in their ceremonies and in their traditions and in their hand washing and in their vows, the whole goal was to not be like our ancestors who moved themselves far away from God. And so their whole goal was to follow all these traditions so that they could bring themselves more and more near to God. And Jesus says the irony is that in the process, their hearts were actually moving further and further away from Him. 
because they were losing a heart to follow and obey what God wants and getting caught, so caught up in, in what their traditions were and how that was separating them from other people around them. Read verses 14 and 19, Jess. 14 through 19, sorry, yeah. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come in here. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. Then Jesus went into the crowd to get away from, then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd, and his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used. Don't you understand either? He asked, can't you see that the food you put in your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. All right. So here's where Jesus actually addresses the issue. He, he really, for the, for the most part, hasn't even addressed their big question, which is why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands? All he does is start calling them hypocrites, okay? And points out the problem of their way of, of, of living with these traditions. But now he actually addresses it. And he does it with kind of a simple statement and simple logic that the things that go into you can't actually affect your spirit, your soul, your heart in and of themselves. They just go in and pass through you and therefore they cannot make you unclean. They can't defile you in any way. Um, now, this statement actually, the last statement specifically, that nothing you eat makes you unclean, and Mark gives the commentary and says, by this Jesus declared all foods to be clean. Now that is a big statement because food laws were biblical. He's not just talking about man-made traditions anymore. He's talking about Leviticus. He's talking about things that, like I said, have been followed for twelve to fourteen hundred years now, um, and and have been a huge deal to the people. Not only that, like around this time, the most famous. Martyr stories for Jewish people involved um, pork. Truthfully, um, when when this Seleucid king back in in the period of the Maccabees, so this is the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, when he took over this region, he was so dead set on killing off Judaism that he he did he. he Enlist, or, uh, enacted all these different decrees to try and shut it down, burning the Hebrew scriptures and, and stuff like that. One of the things he would do is he would try to basically force feed people pork because he knew that that was something that defiled them and made them unclean. It was against their law. And those who would not do it, he would slaughter there. Um, and, and, and those who resisted and chose not to do that and died for not eating that food were looked at as heroes, these heroic martyrs who were faithful to God, and here Jesus steps in and says, not that big a deal, whether you eat or not. And, and that would have been crazy. That, that would have been huge. In fact, it, it seems that his own disciples really didn't even make sense of this or didn't know what to do with this statement for a while. Because if you remember in Acts 10, Peter is sitting on a rooftop. Do you remember this? And God gives him a dream, and in that dream there's this sheet that comes down and it's filled with all these different kinds of unclean animals. And, and in the dream it says, Peter, take and eat, kill and eat. And Peter says, never, God, I've never let any unclean food come into my mouth, into my body. Um, this happens years after Jesus says, nothing that comes into you can make you unclean. And so it seems like they, they didn't even really get it at this point. Um, so 
here's a question, and, and we posed it to you in your table groups, but I know not all of you are in, and some of you are studying different things in your table groups. How is this not inconsistent for God to come in the book of Leviticus and say, you do not eat this, 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 and this. And then Jesus to come in the New Testament and to say, as the Son of God, who should be in complete agreement with the Father because He is God, for Him to say, no big deal if you eat those things. How can Jesus show up and contradict God as the Son of God? Does that not seem inconsistent? This is, by the way, one of the biggest accusations sometimes that gets leveled against Christians because they pick and choose what parts of the Bible they want to listen to and obey. This is big in the issue of same-sex marriage. So like Christians will come and say like you should not you should not marry someone of the same gender as you because the Bible forbids it. And one of the big accusations is the Bible also forbids eating pork, but you don't have any problem with that. It also says don't eat shrimp, but you don't have any problem with that. And so why is it that you just pick and choose the parts of the Bible that you want to listen to? Why is it you pick and choose those things? And why is it that Jesus gets to come and say, these rules you don't have to obey anymore? It's a big question. And it's worth answering. So briefly, here's what I would say. The Old Testament at its most basic level can be broken up, when, when we talk about Old Testament laws, at its most basic level is broken up into two different kinds of laws. There are moral laws, and these are laws that flow from the character and nature of God. So when, when the Bible talks about how we need to be people who speak the truth and are honest, that's because God is a God of truth. He is true, and in Him there is no line. And so, therefore, deceit goes against His character. When the Bible says you love your neighbor as yourself, that's because the Bible tells us God is love. And so that's why love becomes a command in the Old Testament. It's a moral law, an ethical law that never changes because God's character and nature never change. The other side, the other parts of the laws are what we would call ceremonial laws or purity laws. And these are laws that were designed to do two things. First of all, to separate God's people from the rest of the pagan nations around them to make them unique and holy and set apart, but also they were a constant reminder of the fact that as a human being, I am not fit to be in the presence of God, that I am unholy, that I am unworthy. And so these are the things I do ceremonially so that I can still be in His presence, so that I can live amongst His people, so that I can live near the tabernacle. I sacrifice animals. I don't eat pork. I don't um, wear clothing with two different kinds of thread or material in them. And there were all these ceremonial laws that were designed to make me holy so that I can be a part of God's people and so I, I can be in His presence. The New Testament changes that though, right? Not, not necessarily the New Testament, specifically Jesus changes that. Because when Jesus dies on the cross, what incredibly huge event takes place in the temple? The veil that separates us from God, that declares you are not holy enough to be in the presence of a holy God is torn from top to bottom, declaring that now our holiness, our purity, and our ability to be a part of God's people does not come from ritual ceremonial things that we do. It comes from the blood of Jesus. 
And so the reason that we hold fast to God's um, laws about sexual ethics but not to laws about pork is because pork is not what makes me clean. Jesus is what makes me clean. And yet God's character that is explained through the laws of ethics of sex and greed and pride and all those things, those things remain forever because God does and so does His character. That's why those things are are moved that way and that's why it is not inconsistent for Jesus to come and say this, um, to to declare foods to be clean. Um, Read verses 20 through 23 for us, Jess. Immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. All right. So here, Jesus radically alters the perception of what it means to be holy to God or set apart to Him. Um, and how we get this up until this point, as we've been mentioning, physical, there were physical markers that declared you holy or not. Okay? You're Jewish, which the main physical marker was circumcision, okay, at that point. That's what declares whether you're part of God's people or not. And you're offering sacrifices, or you're washing your hands, or you're not eating this food. All of these physical boundary markers that said holy and part of God's people or not holy and on the outside. Jesus comes here and changes. And listen, you will see the the trajectory of the church from here on out be shaped by what Jesus is saying here when he says, it is not the things on the outside of you that counts, it is the things on the inside. It is what comes out of your heart. This becomes huge in Romans 2 where Paul says, this is what it means to be a Jew i.e. part of the people of God. That's what he means by Jew. He says it is not outward circumcision that makes you a Jew. It's being a Jew inwardly, being part of God's people inwardly, being circumcised inwardly. And But it, what he's basically saying is having a heart that is set apart and marked by God. So it's the things that come from the inside. And from here on out, we get this understanding that it is within us that we are marked as holy or not holy, not things on the exterior, not things on the outside. Now, that does not mean what Jesus is not saying is that physical things don't matter. Because he goes on to list a series of physical acts that flow out of that heart, that are markers for what is happening in your heart by by those physical acts. Um, And so he lists a number of them. And and, and here's another actually kind of key issue when it comes um, to the topic of same-sex marriage and homosexuality. Another one of the major arguments that is proposed is this, that Jesus never said anything against homosexuality. And the idea is, if Jesus comes as the Son of God to this earth, and He spends 33 years on the earth, and He never once speaks against homosexuality, then why do you consider it such a big deal that needs to be spoken against? Why do Christians talk against it when Christ, who they're named for, did not? Now that's 
it's, it's a little more complicated than that, right? Because we believe that when Paul is speaking, that he's speaking by the Spirit of Jesus, right? So, so it's, it's not quite as simple as it might get lined up. But, but I would propose to you um, that because of this text specifically, that Jesus actually does prohibit homosexuality. And that is because of this word um, that's used here, sexual immorality or sexual immorality. Um, <laughs> sectional immorality, whatever you want to call it. So, um, so because of this word, the word is actually um, in the Greek, and you'll recognize it, pornea, from where we get the word. Fornication. There you go, yes. <laughs> the King James fornication, that is probably. But also we get this word pornography from it. Um, and, and it was basically a catch-all word for sexual immorality. Now, here is something, and, and, and Scott is going to dig into this a little deeper, and it, it is. It's multifaceted and gets bigger. But, but this is a truth that, that is a little difficult to argue with. And that is that when a rabbi steps up in first century Palestine and he begins to explain rules and laws about something like sexual immorality, it would be understood by everyone sitting there in the room with him that his definition for sexual immorality is Leviticus 18. The law. Like all of us know, when, when he says sexual immorality, or when he says greed, or when he says whatever, nobody goes, what do you mean by that? They all know exactly what a Jewish rabbi meant in the first century. They meant what Leviticus means when it says it. And so Leviticus 18 is the primary chapter that prohibits all different kinds of sexual acts. And so let's, let's not get hung up on this one thing of same-sex relationships. It prohibits adultery. It prohibits incest. It prohibits bestiality. It prohibits all kinds of things. But amongst that list is homosexuality. And so when Jesus says sexual immorality, everybody's mind in the room goes to Leviticus 18. And what does Leviticus 18 says? It says all these things. And, and I would argue that Jesus would have to specifically say something like, except for homosexuality, if he didn't mean it. Because everybody knows what sexual immorality is. It's what Leviticus says it is. And, and so, uh, again, this, this gets bigger, this gets deeper than even what I've just presented to you here. But in a couple minutes, Scott will stand up and, and, and dig into this a little bit more. So... Take a, take a one-minute break or whatever, and then we'll, we'll jump into that. Okay, so here's what we're going to do for the next uh, half hour or so remaining, remaining time. Uh, I'm going to talk about homosexuality, specifically focusing on what Jesus thought about it. Um, and, and you know this, maybe better than I, but you know this. Uh, maybe not better than I, how multifaceted this issue is, okay, and how multi-layered this is, and, and whenever you use the Bible to try and prove things that are, that, that are wrapped up in a lot of emotion and, and are really, really personal for people, we've got to be really careful the way we use the Bible, right? So... We, there are lots of things that have been said about, about this. So I'm going to point you to a few resources. One is this. Consider this question. Is a podcast that, that the Sunnybrook staff have, have put together. There's been about eight episodes. But the last four have been on 
have been on this issue of homosexuality, what Christians should believe, what, what the Bible says about it, how we should think about it, all that stuff. The last four episodes, so I would encourage you to listen to those four episodes. They're really good. They're about 30 to 40 minutes each. And so there's a lot of really good stuff in there. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to tackle most all of the, this, this issue way better than I can and we can in 30 minutes. Preston Sprinkle, who has somewhat of an unfortunate name, um, and yet, and let, yet it stands out. He, he's a professor at a Bible college in Boise, Idaho. And um, I've, Drew actually um, pointed him out to me recently, and I've been reading a lot of his stuff, and I really like what he's, what he's put together. His website has on it, if you go on the right-hand side of it, has, has all the classes that he teaches, has uh, all his blogs, has everything. He has a whole class on homosexuality that he teaches. You can click into that and see all his notes for all the class. You can see all the blogs he's written about it. You can see um, all these re- references. So I would recommend a lot. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point him out and quote him quite a bit tonight um, some, from some of the research he's done, especially, especially with this particular area of what Jesus thought about um, homosexuality. So go check him out. And then Messy Grace is a book of a friend of mine that just came out, and, uh, and this is the, I think I put something on, on uh, Twitter about it, but uh, I'll, I'll talk about that book later if we have time. Great book, though. Um, so, starting us off, this, let, me, let me say this to kind of set up where we're going. The pendulum has swung from, what I mean by this is, the church's response to, the church's reaction to Christians' thinking about, talking about, and, and talking to homosexuals, uh, the, the, the pendulum has swung from unloving, which is uh, not, not 100% the case. Um, I'm not even sure a percentage, but I would say, by and large, the, the LGBT community in the 80s felt the church, and maybe the 90s felt the church was really unloving. This book talks about it. Caleb uh, is a guy who has two gay parents, and when he was young, would go to gay pride, gay, gay parade, pride parades. We're having struggles today. It's her fault. Um, and so, at nine years old, he's walking in, in these parades, and he has some very vivid experiences with Christians doing some pretty mean things. One of which is. Um, Spraying urine out of water guns onto them. God hates fags. Jesus um, wants nothing to do with you. Signs like that. So, and yet, lots of yelling and lots of other things. So, this is his experience. This is maybe the, the experience of um, the, the church in some sense. And those are some extreme cases, but certainly there are stories out there. But the pendulum has swung. So, your generation, this is not the case. The, your generation, I would say my age and younger, we we swung hard maybe the other way to where now we're we're very it's just like oh yeah we want everyone to be happy so therefore we just want everybody to be happy and whatever they want to do is and so so what I want to help think through and help you think through is how do we begin to see how do we begin to let God's word shape the way we think about these things like like I've said maybe not this year but last year I said it quite a bit um, every the Bible, the gospel, offends every culture at some level. There is not a culture that exists or has ever existed where the Bible isn't offensive to that culture. 
because, because we screw it up. But every culture thinks they have it figured out and thinks that their way is the right way to think about everything. And the Bible, at some level, will offend that culture. And so what, what I've proposed is, listen, we need a standard that, that rises above our, um, you know, as I think Coldplay says, carnival of idiots, you know, our, our collective wisdom that, that we come up with what we think is the best ideas about whatever, we need a standard that rises above that, that, that holds to God's standard, and that's, that's God's revelation to us, that's His Word. And so, how do we begin to move from that way, from, from a, just whatever the culture says, to what, is, what does God want me, how does God want me to think about this? So, there's a lot to do with that. Let's, let's, let's tackle this question. What, is, what did Jesus believe about homosexuality in all its forms? What did Jesus believe about it in all its forms? Let's break this down. Jesus, you guys know him. He, he is, this is what we believe the Bible says about him. He's 100% God, 100% man. Meaning, he, he, he is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so therefore, what he believes is what God believes. And he's also 100% man. Um, as Hebrews tells us, this is the only way for, for, uh, for our sins to be paid for for man's sins would be paid by a man, and Jesus was the ultimate man. Jesus was the, as Romans says, the second Adam, the true Adam that came to do the right thing. So, uh, so he is 100% God, 100% man, and and yet Jesus had beliefs about things. So the question is, did Jesus believe what he believed because he was born in a culture that believed certain things? Did did was he, ra- he was raised in this first century world, and so therefore he believed these things, and it was just because it was cultural. If he would have been born today, he would have believed something different. And, and what I, what I want to say is, what I'm proposing is, no, I, he believed things because, he, because he's God. And so his beliefs are God's beliefs. So we, we really need to wrestle, okay, we need to start here with what did Jesus believe about whatever, and, and then we can kind of go out from there. This, this next phrase, homosexuality in all its forms, um, there, there are some terms that we really need to talk about and define in, in order to, 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 to learn how to talk about this subject. Okay? This, this podcast does a phenomenal job of talking through these, um, but let me give you somewhat of a brief synopsis. Um, so you have these three terms. Same-sex attraction, same-sex sex, and the same-sex marriage, okay? Um, the Bible does not uh, say anything about same-sex attraction. doesn't actually talk about, as far as I know, attraction, period. doesn't talk about, maybe, maybe I guess you could say Song of Solomon talks a lot about attraction. Um, but it's like, you know, you look like a flock of goats. Uh, your neck is like the tower of whatever... Yeah, I mean, heavy stuff. So, so it doesn't. It doesn't. The Bible doesn't speak speak for or against um, attraction. Uh, it doesn't seem to be brought up. Um, and so, what, what we're talking about when I say same sex attraction is there are. I believe, I believe there are people. Well, all of us are born with natural attractions, and and we can choices towards those or not. We can do things about those or not. And, and yet, and so, 
this is this is so when we talk about this subject, we need to understand this. This is what we're talking about. There's there's the same sex attraction issue that that we can't control. That that person can't control. They can reject it. They can do all. The, there's stories, um, and I've I've met with and talked through several people that that would tell me, yeah, I, I've tried for years and years and years and not changing. Okay, so is that. Um, same-sex sex, does the Bible talk about it? Yes, actually. Actually, the Bible condones, um, speaks against most all forms of sex, except for in one context. There's, the only, there's only one context in which the Bible affirms sex, and that's within a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. There, from Genesis 2 on, that's the case. Um, now, some would say, you know what? The Bible has all kinds of sex. It has rape. It has incest. It has all kinds of crazy things. So the Bible talks about sex. The Bible is for sex. It's, it's all over the place. So just because the Bible gives accounts of people doing things that God does not like or um, want or whatever does not mean in any way that, that the Bible is affirming these different forms of sex. So the Bible talks a lot about sex because people are messed up. There's a lot of crazy things that happen. Um, but, and, and the Bible gives account to those things, but it's not affirming those things. So yes, the Bible does condemn same-sex sex consistently from Old Testament on through to new. Um, so that's something we have, to, we have to deal with and we have to wrestle with. Um, there's people that want to complicate it, um, but you have to do a lot of things to, to get around this. Does the Bible condemn same-sex marriage? Actually, the Bible doesn't say anything about same-sex marriage. Uh, so this one's a little more complicated because um, the words aren't in there, but from, like I said, from Genesis 2 on, there is a consistent standard of, what, of definition of what marriage is between a man and a woman, and, and there's, there's no deviating from that. Jesus says it uh, in Matthew 19. Um, uh, Paul clearly says it. The, the, the New Testament writers say it. Um, so... So, we have to go, okay, well, um, what do we do with that? And, and you know, is that, is that acceptable? Um, so, w- with this consistent definition of, of marriage, we really have to try to go, okay, where, where does this come from? And my experience, I've read several different papers and read and, talk, and listened to different people talk about this issue, and they really have to do, here's the two things they have to do, is they have to deconstruct the text, meaning they have to try and say, well... That word, you know, was used once this way, and so it could be that they're referring to this in that way, and so there's a possibility that, and so you have to do that with all these five or however many different texts there are. Um, The other thing that they have to do is um, speak from silence. Well, the Bible is silent about it, so therefore, isn't there a possibility that God could be for it? And and, um, that's just a... a it's just a bad way to argue for anything from, from the argument of silence. It, it really is for a lot of, for a lot of reasons. So let me, let me let's get into this. Um, let's let's start with what Drew mentioned, what the first century Jews believed about homosexuality, um, and so this is what we need just to just to kind of start with. Okay, if we're going to tackle this question, what did what did Jesus believe about homosexuality in all its forms? We have to go. Okay, what did what did first century, first century Judaism understand and believe and affirm? And, and like he said, their, their, their understanding, their definition was Le, Leviticus 18. 
and and 20 um, is is where they where they go. So Preston Sprinkle, um, the guy with the great name, he this is this is a slide from from one of his talks. He basically quotes um, in a blog. Actually, he goes into more detail about this, but he quotes these five different sources that are extra biblical, meaning they're outside the Bible, um, dating from sixth century to two hundred years after Jesus, uh, saying basically that that the non-biblical authors they wrote about homosexuality, and they all consistently, equally, unanimously. Um, agreed with the Leviticus 18 definition of it, of, of sexual immorality. Their understanding of it was Leviticus 18. There's no record of any sources that, that, would, that would be affirming any form of homosexuality uh, through sex or marriage. So, um, there's that. This is what he said. There's no evidence in 500 years of Jewish Tradition on either side of Jesus suggesting that homosexual sex was up for debate. Rather, Jesus' Jesus's Jewish worldview, testified by many diverse sources written by different authors living in different geographical regions, some of whom actually saw many positive things in the Greco-Roman world. He's referring to guys like Philo and these others that they were, they were Jewish men that lived in the Greco-Roman world and actually kind of liked it, talked a lot about the things that they enjoyed about it, and yet, equally, had this position about homosexual sex specifically um, that uh, prohibited it. So, there's that. Here's, here's the next question. Does Jesus' silence about homosexuality mean that he was affirming or condoning it? And, um, and so, this is an interesting one. Again, it's not a great, it's not a real strong argument to argue, argue from the position of silence, but... But we, but we can look at what Jesus talked about. We can look at what Jesus taught, okay? And, and we can see what Drew kind of pointed out, which we see in our text, that there were some things that were widely accepted in tradition and even talked about in the law that Jesus comes along and he changes the game on. So we know he's able to do this. And so here are some things that when, when Jesus goes against the traditional norms, he makes it clear. Okay, so think about these things. Divorce, uh, retaliation, um, the Sabbath, food laws, we see in our text here. So you have this phrase, whenever Jesus was about to change the game a little bit, or actually sometimes not widen the gate like he does with the food laws, he kind of widens the road. He says, listen, he, he, he cleanses all foods, he declares all foods unclean. He widens that road. But other things, he takes it and narrows it in. So, divorce, um, adultery, and so this phrase, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. That's when you know Jesus is about to help his audience understand the heart of God behind a lot of these laws and these traditions. And so, divorce is one, retaliation, adultery. Um, he goes from adultery to lust, right? Retaliation, he goes uh, from... You've heard that it said, um, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love those who persecute you. Right? He takes a wide thing and makes it narrow. Um, he, makes, he, he takes it to a whole new level of morality in a lot of sense. 
and and yet homosexuality is specifically never mentioned. And um, he also doesn't say anything about bestiology, incest, or rape. And and we know God would be against those things. And so, so anyway, th- these are just things that we have to try to go. Okay, as we peel back this this question, what does Jesus believe about it? And if we're really going to start with, okay, well, gosh, I want my beliefs to be shaped by what Jesus believed. Um, these are these are some these are some things we got to really wrestle with and, and think through. So, again, my my. My hope for this, for you, um, specifically, and we're going to watch a video clip here in a second, and Drew's going to come up, and then, and then I want to open it up to questions, because we want to, we want to use, I want to use this time for, for you guys to, to ask some questions, um, but, but I, I want, I want, maybe more than anything, obviously I want you to know and love Jesus, but next to that, I want, for tonight specifically, to help you move from this cultural-based belief and ethics to a Bible-based belief and ethics. To, to no longer let your cultural surroundings determine how you feel about certain things, but to begin to go, yeah, be honest about your feelings. If I was, if I could, sure, if I was honest, I would want certain things to be different. And, but I have to go, okay, am I going to trust God with how He's revealed Himself to me? to us through His Word? Am I going to trust that? And therefore, am I going to act and walk in faith within it? And so, to move from this cultural base. And so this, as a segue, this is a, this is a great example, this debate. Not, it's not really a debate. It's more just a conversation from a guy named Rob Bell with a guy named Andrew Wilson. Some of, most of you probably know Rob Bell or heard of him. He's a pastor, was a pastor at a church in Michigan. Creative guy. Um, he's kind of recently... Uh, become become started believing things that were unorthodox. Okay, we'll say unorthodox because I like Wilson's definition of liberalism as being resurrection resurrection denying, and Rob Bell's not that. So he's becomes he's become whatever unorthodox in his beliefs about certain things, and this this would definitely be one of them. And a guy named Andrew Wilson, who if you don't know, you should because he's awesome. So let's check this out. Time for the church to acknowledge that we have brothers and sisters who are gay. Hang on. And I don't know why you don't see it. Do I have to move it or something, Drew? Is that it? Did it do it? I can't see it here, so. I'm just going to say a little lower. <laughs> Where is it? I have no idea. Ah, there it is. We'll get there. Got it. Woo! Technology. It's awesome. This is a part of life in the modern world. And that's how it is. And the cultural consciousness has shifted. Mm-hmm. And 
that's this is how the world is, and that what's happening for a lot of people is they want nothing to do with God and Jesus because they can't see beyond that particular issue. Now, this is up to this point. There's been a lot of agreement between you guys, but I suspect you take a different mm. view on mm. this. And well, can I ask uh, some questions? Because what I don't know is the grounding for that. Yeah, that statement that I find interesting. Yeah. So would you say I don't think that a guy having sex with a guy is sinful? I would begin with I am for monogamy, I am for fidelity, I am for commitment. And I think the world needs more of that. And I am I think that promiscuity is dangerous and promiscuity is destructive. And some people are gay and want to share their life with someone. And they should be able to. And that's how the world is, and we should affirm that, and we should affirm monogamy, fidelity, and commitment, both gay and straight. Is that a yes or a no? As in, do you believe it? So what I'm trying to get my head on is, do you think it's sinful, but we need to lump it because the world's changed, or do you think it's not sinful, and if so, do you think the Bible doesn't think it's sinful, and Jesus didn't think it was sinful? That's... I'm not aware that Jesus mentions it. I think you have about five verses that can be read a number of different ways. And there is a large Christian tradition that sees this as there are scriptures that speak to this, but I don't think you can make an overwhelming case against it. So, but is your position, which I know is, you know. Yeah. So your position would be, no, it's not sinful, right? It's not sinful for, for a guy to have sex with a guy. That's not a problem for God. It never has been. It's just at times you have to move people towards forward in history. That's not a problem. If you understand Paul properly, you don't have a problem with God. Right. Because yeah. I don't want to critique I think or engage Paul with a position you don't have. Had, I think Paul had his answer to that question tied up in worship of all sorts of other deities. I think it was all one giant hairball in Paul's day. And that for him, there was the temple, and there was the temple of other gods who were opposed to the God of Israel, and that went on in there. So I think when Paul was talking about this issue, for him it's tied up in all sorts of idolatry, it's all sorts of rejection of God. So I want to like pull the various issues apart. I don't think they so, had a cultural conception. Though, then you got that if Paul is looking at there's two gay men in the church in Corinth, they want they're having sex together, they're not worshipping idols. Paul's gonna say, That's great guys, go for it, we need more of it and all that. So is that your, is that what you believe is true of Paul? I think Paul didn't have that cultural framework or conception operating around him. I think he had men and boys. I think he had temples. I did not think he was talking about what we're talking about in 2013, which was two committed people of a same-sex relationship. Okay, so, so, so you, you don't think there's any... You don't. I, so your position would be this is not sinful. This is righteous. This is a good thing. God says, way to go. But I, I've come from my friend heaven. I'm blessing that and saying that's wonderful. It's not. It's a beautiful the, thing. You should the, the theologian Cornelius Plantinga defines sin as culpable disturbance of shalom. So any way in which I'm guilty of destroying the shalom that God intends for all things. Yeah. I don't think a healthy monogamous same-sex relationship destroys or is destructive to the shalom God intends for all things. So you don't think it. You don't think it's sinful. You so, Although so some you, things are really destructive. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so so for you, gay sex isn't isn't sinful at all. And if we understood the Bible properly, we'd all get that. So actually, we are. We're, when Jesus talks about sexual morality flowing from within the heart and refers back to Leviticus 18 with all of its prohibitions, you would say that's that's a time-specific thing. That's just Jesus was was Jesus wrong on that? Did he 
misunderstand what God had meant, or did Jesus just to step forward, or what's the? Because obviously he's just he's talking in the same passages. He says all foods are clean, but from the heart come yeah. sexual morality among other things. And sexual morality in the Jewish world, as you read a lot about it, as I had, is understood very much in terms yeah, of yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, so the so for, again, I'm trying to get. Would you say right, would you right. say Paul didn't have a problem with it? So you don't you don't think. Paul or Jesus were referring to any of those prohibitions from the from the Old Testament, and, and they, they weren't really talking about anything like what we're seeing today. Or would you say, you know, Jesus did say that, but he was a child of his time as Paul was, and therefore we can move beyond it now because the world's changed. It's just which of those two That's a great question. positions you're in. <laughs> That's a great, deep, <laughs> thick, complicated question. I have to think about more. So like a, is, is it a question of hermeneutics, or is it a question of exegesis? So is it that you and I would disagree about so obviously yeah, right, great about question. Paul or about Jesus or is yeah, it that you're just about how that fits into God's story and you'd say we go yeah, beyond that now. Well when Jesus is refer- referring to Leviticus tied up in Leviticus is two different kinds of fabric being woven together. So you have lots of questions about Jesus' understanding of Leviticus based on because wait, 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 wait. Is he calling people to two different kinds of fabric and can we do that now and I, I think when Jesus quotes Leviticus that that's, opens up a whole series of questions about exactly where in Leviticus we say that's timeless that's not timeless that's cultural that's not culturally bound that's a whole longer discussion well yeah but when he talks about sexual immorality it's quite yeah. that, in that sense I'm just saying that, you know Jesus yeah. is understanding as a Jewish first century Jew his understanding of yeah, yeah. sexual morality is Torah shape, right? so he, he has a view of yeah. What is and isn't acceptable. So when he says that's one of the evils that comes from the heart, yeah. um, he he's not he's not whistling in the dark. He's not saying that in a vacuum. People, his hearers understanding Matthew, yeah, not yeah, John, yeah. etc. Yeah. Paul understands him. I, I obviously I disagree with the, with the way you're understanding Paul's use of the words in, as well. But and we probably won't get time to well, get to that. But. We, okay. <laughs> so um, so here, here, let me say this. The reason I the reason I wanted to show that was not to. I can I just confess I hate debates um, I don't think anyone wins in debates uh, because anyway the point was not to laugh at Rob Bell at all okay the, the point was to help you see the way Andrew was asking the questions what was Andrew trying to get at like the foundation to which Rob believed what he believed that's what he's trying to get at I love Rob's heart the the video is 20 minutes long he goes on um, he gets a little frustrated at the end, Bell does, because he thinks that we've made this such an issue. And this, this, his heart, I would say, is this, what Christians believe about this issue is what stops people from coming to Christ. And so therefore, we need to drop it because it's holding people back from coming to Christ. So I love his heart, okay? I love his heart. But what Andrew Wilson continues to hold on to is, yeah, but it's the foundation to where, how you got to where you, what you believe is what I'm is what he wants to know and, and where he wants to start because when that when that foundation becomes no it's ethic or it's cultural based versus biblical based then we can get in a lot of trouble. So that that was the that was a reason I wanted to show that and I brought him up because he's smarter and I want to ask him if if he's had if he has any other thoughts, especially maybe specifically about the video as I try and get this to get off of the screen. Any other things that from yeah, I mean, it that the, you remember? The the question that he says that's so good is He's asking this question, um, are you saying we've misinterpreted Scripture, i.e., Rob Bell, you love God's Word and you think we should follow it, we're just misunderstanding it, or are you saying that Paul got it wrong when he said that? And that really is a crucial difference. Uh, 
between a person who says, who says, no, I, I want to be faithful to God's word. I just don't think that, that God's word prohibits this. And, and, and in that sense, I go, okay, I mean, as brother to brother, we, I want to talk through and hear why you don't think so. But that is a little different than, than what a number of people are just saying, yeah, Paul must have just been wrong. He just didn't understand this properly. He just didn't get it. And so what, what Wilson was trying to do is get to, as he said, the heart of what he's, what, what um, Rob Bell is believing in or what it's based in. But, but then he says later in the video, and I, I like this. This isn't just true in this issue, but in a lot. He, he uses this phrase, the humility of orthodoxy. And what he means by the humility of orthodoxy is this is the way the church has interpreted this for 2,000 years. And when we come and say, no, now same-sex marriage is okay, we're basically saying, I know something that nobody else in the church understood for 2,000 years. They were all dumb on this. I figured it out. Um, and this, again, this isn't just homosexuality. Anytime we believe something or we have a doctrine that contradicts what most of Christians have said for most of church history, we need to stop and ask ourselves, like, is there truth to this? Like, there sometimes needs to be the humility of orthodoxy that says, I'm going to humble myself and question my beliefs if they don't line up with what most of the Christians, who also have the Holy Spirit, by the way, believed throughout church history. And, and I just think that that's a really valuable thing. So. Yeah, yeah. So I encourage you to watch, watch it. Um, and watch it all the way to the end. So, and it's an actually it's just a 20 minute clip of uh, like an hour and a half taping where they talk about lots of things. And so this is just one of them where they had a, had a disagreement. There's a lot of other things where they had a lot of agreements on. So anyway, check it out. So any 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 questions? I know we're gonna go over by the way, and I'm not I don't even care. Um, so any 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 thoughts? Any questions? Yes, anybody, just anyone. Okay, go ahead. Right here, man. <laughs> uh, this, uh, this topic is brought up a lot in uh, discussions and debates in class, and it's always incredibly heated. So uh, I'm just wondering, like, as a person in the class, should I take a stance when people are debating um, this? Or, like, like, if so, when? seems like if I debate it's just morals. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a good question. Um, here's that, that's a good question because what, what were you saying? Is it worth is it worth yeah, is it worth the, the kind of heat that's gonna come from it? Yes, yes. You didn't do it right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I had I had a a friend come up to me and I would say what I'm about to say is a little off, but I think it applies to this, and it's really important for us to know and understand. So it wasn't a friend who came up. I, I was teaching a class at a, at a conference camp thing this summer, and, and I was talking about homosexuality. And afterwards, a friend came up to me and said, my friend uh, is, 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 I think they said that they're actually transitioning, wanting to become, I think it was a girl who's wanting to become a guy, and they're attracted to other girls, and and so what, what should I say? What should I do with them? And my first question was, like, does your friend know Jesus? Like, is your friend a Christian? Because that changes where we're going with all of this, right? Like, if, if somebody's not a Christian, my main goal isn't to communicate them that they need to be straight. Like, that's, I'm not trying to convert people to heterosexuality. 
I want people to know Jesus is what I want. And so, therefore, like, that's not my main aim. And, and, and I would argue, I would argue that I don't have a whole lot, I don't have tons to argue with outside of the Scripture. That's what I'm putting my main foundation. If they don't trust God's Word, then there's not tons that I can push them towards with this. My main reason for believing this is because this is what God has lifted up in His Word. And so, all that to say... Um, I would be hesitant. I would be cautious about just jumping in because you're talking to a bunch of people who don't have the standard for truth that you have, and therefore it's tough to kind of point to that. Um, but I, I, I don't know if I, I can ever give like a never. I, I want to say cautious, but like kind of try and seek and trust the Spirit on that a little bit, and in which direction He might be leading on some of those. I, I think it's okay to kind of point out some of the inconsistencies and to talk through some of those things. Um, for example, like, um, at what point, in, in uh, we've mentioned this, I think, before, but in Canada, and a little bit in Great Britain right now, there are movements right now to make um, pedophilia legal and okay. And it's for the same reason, because we're actually discovering that in the same way that a person who has same-sex attraction can't change those feelings like automatically that it's not that easy that the same is true about pedophilia that that's not like something that someone's choosing to believe I just a person doesn't choose to be attracted to little boys they just are and so kind of asking that question so if just because a person can't change their orientation does that mean it's okay and and kind of bringing up some thoughts but I don't know if it's something you need to dive I don't know what your thoughts are but it would be a discerning thing in terms of what's the tone going on here and, and what, what Christian voice is, is being heard the loudest, and if it's, if, it, if it's not wrapped up in the heart of Jesus, then I would say someone needs to stand up for the heart of Jesus, for love and for, you know, grace and truth, and, and the way in which he spent time with the outcasts. If we have time, I'll show, I have a, another slide or two that kind of point out um, Jesus' love for the outcast. And his time with them, so so we need to be proponents of, be champions for the love of Christ, but at the same time, you know, understand the truth that this is what Jesus believed about it, and I'm a follower of His, and so this is what I I believe God God's way is the right way, and so I trust in God in this, but I also know I'm called to love. So I mean, I if if that voice is being heard, then I would say, you know. But if that voice is not being heard, then someone needs to stand up for Jesus. And yeah, you know, point out inconsistencies, you know, whatever you feel led to do. But I would just pray in discerning. I heard somebody say um, uh, that somebody asked, so if, if, if someone asked me if homosexuality was a sin, what would you say to them? And their answer was, I would ask them to meet for coffee four weeks in a row I'll buy the coffee and then at the fifth week I'll answer the question and and it was truth in the context of a relationship because there are certain things that are just you know trigger things that people are going to take and use and so let's let's love in the context of a relationship good question though
Yeah. So the question is, if 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 a same-sex couple approaches the church to use the church for a wedding, or to, approaches me to marry them, what would I do? I mean, I would sit down with them. I would try to establish a relationship. I would try to give truth within a relationship. Get to know them, understand them. You know, uh, figure out when it's appropriate to say, "Listen, this is where I stand on this." I've actually turned um, two couples away from marrying them. Um, it was not easy. Um, one of them I probably would have married if the girl would have been honest with me. Um, but she said she was a strong Christian, and he was honest and said he wasn't. And so I'm like, well, I kind of can't do that. I, I, I don't believe that. And so I'd love to spend time with you. I'd love to talk to you about this. I'd love to continue this. And they were out. You know, they were gone. Um, kind of find out she was actually telling me what she thought I wanted to hear. And she literally wasn't a believer at all. Um, had I known that, I would have established a relationship. They were going to go to the courthouse anyway and get married. I would have probably established a relationship to try and do, to, to present the Christian understanding, present God's understanding of marriage, and I would, I would, would have done that. So, I would, I will, I will say no. That I would never do that. Now that's going to get complicated for the church. Um, it's going to, who knows what what will happen now that now that uh, things have changed since the summer, but. So, as far as the church, using the church again, it would it would be establish a relationship, explain what we believe, say no in a gracious, gracious and truthful way. Yeah, I mean, our, our kind of perspective is, though, on, on that, in the same reason that because we believe that when we're marrying somebody that we're actually, like, there's, that's like a covenant that's being made between these two people, but also them and God, in a sense, and, and we're we're playing a part in that and playing a role in that, and that's that's why we feel like we can't do something unbiblical, like Scott said, can't marry a believer to an unbeliever, because that seems to go against Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians, but also wouldn't marry a man to a man or a woman to a woman because we're actually kind of speaking on God's behalf to say, I pronounce you man and wife. You know what I mean? And, and so for that reason, I, I don't think we'd be able to in clear conscience. And, and as much as we want to love and care for people, that act of actually marrying somebody is, is bigger than just kind of a kind act for someone, you know? So... Why do you have to make a noise? <laughs> Nobody else makes a noise. I have a son just like that. Go ahead. Well, is it appropriate for me to ask two questions? Yeah. Um, so, when ask the one and ask then we'll see. My first question has to deal with church discipline, a particular that I'm kind of struggling with, so just excuse my gasping. First Corinthians five, when it talks about uh, putting out the immoral brother, how does the church handle a same a someone who is in a same sex relationship or affirms that? Like, how do you deal with that from a church discipline aspect? Do you just allow them to stay in the church? How how does that work? Yeah. And secondly, speaking to the oh, concept of uh, the humility of orthodoxy. Uh, I don't know if you know who Matthew Vines is, 
But he kind of, I guess, fancies himself as the gay Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. And he calls his little movement the Reformation Movement. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, you know, you have Martin Luther and the Reformers, who after hundreds and hundreds of years of Catholic interpretation of Scripture and tradition, they just said, no, Scripture says this, we throw it out. Um, so where the, where's the balance between the humility of orthodoxy and the soundness of scriptural interpretation? Yeah, I'll take the first one. Um, so, so basically, if uh, if there's a, a gay couple attending our church or coming to our church, so you know this this is why actually we we believe membership is a it's not biblical. It's not well. It's not. It is biblical. It's not in the Bible. The word and the idea and the way in which we do it is not explicit in the Bible. But we certainly believe there's a commitment that is described in 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 the Bible in terms of church commitment. So. So, before a person is committed to this church, for instance, Hunter and um, my sister here, Cassie, have gone forward recently in the last couple weeks and, you know, placed their membership here, introduced to the church. So, we both had conversations. We met, we talked, we got, I got to know them. So, that, that's where if, if a, a couple came to our 101 and wanted to become a member, so we would sit down with them, we'd talk to them, we would explain to them, listen, this is... This is where we stand. This is where we are. And in terms of a commitment, the more they're committed to this is the more we have ownership of discipline. So we believe in church discipline because the Bible teaches it. Um, we believe it's helpful to help bring people back to repentance. Um, and so I don't think a couple would have, a gay couple would have gotten that far for us to do church discipline. Um, we would love them. We would encourage them. We wouldn't stop them from coming and attending church. Um, there would just be limits in terms of their leadership and uh, influence and, and those types of things we would have but we would do all that hopefully in, in grace and in, in, in relationship and in love and in regards to your second question is it is interesting because there have been some periods in time where it seems as though um, someone has stood up and, and kind of stood against what the church has been preaching for some time. And, and we look to Martin Luther and the Reformation as kind of a key, you know, component of that. And, and, but what Luther claims to be doing, and what I think he was doing, is when they, it is um, trying to go back to what the Word of God says, right? And so he's trying to push aside what a lot of the Roman Catholic tradition had been at that point. And that's kind of his famous statement, like, here I stand... I can do no other is this kind of, unless I am convinced by the word of God that this is true, that what the Catholic, you know, church is teaching uh, is true, then I can't switch on these things. And so even he would argue that what he's trying to go back to is, is the roots and going further back into, say, like Augustine and, and further back into orthodoxy. So Matthew Vines, who's, um, as he mentioned, he's the author of this book, God and the Gay Christian, and, and he is one of those who would consider himself probably evangelical, gospel-believing Christian, but also gay and, and affirming of same-sex relationships and, and those things. Um, and and I, I will just admit right here, I've read a little bit of Matthew Vines, but I've read more of what other people have said about Matthew Vines, and so that's not the best position to debate him from, right? I'm, I'm not speaking, to, I've just read a little bit of some of the stuff he said, but one of the major things that Matthew Vines argues from is experience. Um, here's how I know that it's okay that I'm gay. 
is I have felt this from the time I was a little kid, and even though I've prayed for it to go away, it hasn't left. And so why would God give me these feelings if he didn't want me to act on them, right? Um, and so that's not Matthew Vines going back to, unless I'm convinced by the word of God, that's unless I'm convinced by something other than my own experience, right? Is his own, he, he's going back to his own experience. I would say to Matthew Vines, as I would say in class about pedophilia and stuff, name for me one sin that doesn't come naturally to you that you didn't want to do when you were a little kid. Like, name for me one sinful act of that that isn't natural to who you are. That's, that's why temptation is strong, is because it feels natural to us. You know, and so, um, it, it is, a, sometimes we have to go, maybe the church has had it wrong on this, and we got to change, but I always want to go back and, and look at the word, the word, the word, before I challenge the church on something, you know? So. Last question. You're saying if they're already like in a married relationship or something? Or even if they're not, like even if, like, okay, if they're struggling with sin, but they want to like come back to the church, either way, yeah, I, I, yeah. I think that's irrelevant. But like, how yeah. do you? Yeah. I, I spent. Uh, so, so the question is, you know, if a, if if someone that's living this lifestyle wants to come back to Christ or wants to come back to the church and and wants to turn from that, you know. Um, I mean, so that's that's every person that comes to Christ, that comes back to, to the church, is it's turning from sin, and so that's all of us. Um, now, it, it is it's a complicated one for for that person, maybe more so than a person that's gambling every weekend. Although that can be that can be a similar temptation. Although you know whatever. I mean, so there can be lots of things. I spent about four or five months. Um, with a guy in California who was in that boat, lived, lived this lifestyle for nine, nine years, decided to see if he could um, come back to the church uh, because he felt God calling him to a relationship with him. And, and I just, the fir- my, my first four to five months, I just listened. Listened and asked questions and tried to understand where he's coming from. And then, um, you know, but the issue that, that, that I kept coming back to is I was looking for a repentant heart. I was looking for a, a willingness to surrender to Jesus in all things. And um, in, in my, well, after, at the, about the five-month mark is when it changed, and I started challenging him on some things. And then after about another six, another couple months, um, he, he wasn't interested in that at all. Um, and so, so that, that would be the issue is a repentant heart. And, and that's the case for all of us. And that should be the case for all believers, is that we hold we hold none of our none of the things that we want in our hands like this, like no God, you can't have this. It's that we we hold everything with open hands to God. Say God, you have you can have everything, whatever you want, you can have. Let me let me show this, and I, and then we'd love to talk afterwards. Love people by living in the tension between grace and truth. Um, this is another Preston 
Sprinkles, it's a great name, um, thing. He, he talks about Jesus and the marginalized in, in, in Scripture and his and the way in which he lived and acted, loved um, them. And so you think about all these people that he spent time with and loved. And when Jesus encountered sinners, he rarely fronted their sin. At first, he fronted love. And so um, th- this is a, more of a quote from this book, Messy Grace. So I'd love to give this away, actually. If there's, if there's somebody that really would love to, is maybe needs a perspective, uh, this perspective, then I'd love to give that to them if they come up. Um, and, if, and if there's, anyway. So anyway, I'd love to give this, give this away. We're going to end it. Let me pray. And then I think there's food. And quick announcement. Quick announcement. Oh, a quick announcement and then some food, right, girls? Okay, sweet. Let me pray. God. We do ask for your grace and mercy in, in, in this conversation as we think through this, as we talk about this afterwards, as we go forward from here, God, that we would um, that we would always land in this tension between grace and truth and that we would lear- learn to live the way Jesus lived. In Jesus' name, amen. Quick announcement. Quick announcement. There is, on Saturday before the game, there's a reunion here for, for a